We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to From the Median, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. This is Molly Smith, host of From the Median. Thank you for joining me as we present our 2016 Bringing America Back to Life presentations. We know that you will be edified and encouraged as you listen to our roster of speakers who, with their thoughtful, lively, expert presentations, eloquently defend the right to life. And as you listen to them, we encourage you to consider how you will help us pave the way back to a culture of life through prayer, action, voting and education. Never before has it been more important to engage in these challenges that face each of us as we defend and protect all human life. We need your prayers, your efforts, your friendship and your financial support. Please consider making a donation to help us continue our work. Visit our website at bringingamericabacktolife.org to make an online donation. Every dollar you give is used to support our programming. Or send a check or money order to Cleveland Right to Life, 4427 State Road, Cleveland, Ohio, 44109. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Paul Kengor, Professor of Political Science at Grove City College and a New York Times best-selling author. He is Executive Director of the Center for Vision and Values, a Grove City College think tank. He is also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Kengor is an internationally recognized authority on several subjects, particularly Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and Communism. Dr. Kengor has authored over a dozen books, including several bestsellers. His latest book, Takedown, From Communist to Progressive, How the Far Left Has Sabotaged Family and Marriage, is a shocking expose of how the far left have sought to take down the natural, traditional, biblical marriage and family, culminating in gay marriage, which provides the long-sought vehicle for leftists to finally succeed in redefining marriage and family and to attack religion. His topic? Takedown. How Secularists and Radicals Slowly Sabotage Family and Marriage. Thank you, Gordon. We could use you at the think tank. No, no question about that. And, um, and I appreciate the invite from Molly, from Ildi, and everybody. And uh, I'm glad Gordon started us off there with some levity because what I'm about to share with you isn't very funny. Um, this is a pretty, pretty sad, pretty, pretty grim subject. You know, in addition to the, the specialties, the things that I focus on, yeah, one, one is Ronald Reagan. I've done um, a half a dozen books on Ronald Reagan. Spent um, a number, uh, did a bunch of interviews this week on uh, Nancy Reagan. So how ironic is that, right? They, they buried Mrs. Reagan yesterday um, at a spot at the Reagan Library that I've walked by literally probably about 500 times. But, but other areas that I focus on, I focus on the Cold War, communism, Marxism, cultural Marxism. And so because of that, while the rest of the culture is just swimming along, 
going along with whatever Hollywood puts out, whatever the media puts out, whatever new definitions of life and marriage people come up with, um, I just sit there in horror and watch because I know the background, I know the history, I know the ideology. And I know that where we are now on marriage, life, family, this didn't just start with some millennial rolling out of Starbucks with a grande latte a few months ago and coming up with a new, uh, new conception of marriage. I mean, this is a takedown that's been going on for 200 years. Uh, this goes back to, well, really, I mean, this goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? If you really want to go back far enough. Uh, but but it, this absolutely begins in the 1800s, and I'm going to walk you through that process. And, you know, you're not going to see here Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels fighting for gay marriage, but you're going to see a, 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 over time an evolution where different people chip away at the fabric to the point where people today who support redefining marriage, for example, who are absolutely not Marxists in any way, they don't realize that they do share a very, very common thing with a lot of these intellectual radical forebears, and that is they all reject the idea that there is a natural law-based, biblical law-based standard for family and marriage. So that they all agree. they got to get that biblical-based definition, that natural law-based definition, they have to kill that. They've got to take it down. So with that, here we go. This is, um, this is, bo- this is based on my book, Take Down, which, um, which we're offering outside. Sorry, it's a shameless plug, right? But uh, it's uh, my book, Take Down. This is, uh, I dedicate this book to those with the courage to resist redefining the teachings of God, nature, their faith, and their ancestors, while liberals and progressives, always in the name of what, folks? Tolerance, right? Denounce, debase, dehumanize, demonize, and seek to destroy them, right? They accuse you of hate while they hate on you big time, right? Tolerance for me, but not for thee. Right? Tolerance for their ideas, but not for your ideas. Even though your ideas have been around thousands of years, right? Your ideas are the ones not to be tolerated by the forces of tolerance. Uh, I love this quote from Pope Francis. And he is, uh, Pope Francis has become a controversial figure for his position on different things, right? Even to some Orthodox Catholics as well as the non Catholics. But he's been really good on marriage and family. And he said this in the Philippines right before, right when I was finishing the book. And I thought, wow, this is exactly what I'm talking about. There are forms of ideological colonization that are out to destroy the family. Um, they are not born of dreams of prayers. The family is threatened by growing efforts on the part of some to redefine the very institution of marriage by relativism, by the culture of the ephemeral. Every threat to the family is a threat to society itself. The future of humanity passes through the family, which is why for those who want to seek to fundamentally transform the culture in the country, you've got to take down the family. And they, they've realized that for centuries. But they are indeed forms of ideological colonization. Karl Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, wrote this. Abolition of the family! Exclamation mark. 
Even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists. 1848. Marx in 1848 was writing about the abolition of the family. Put an exclamation mark after it. And by the way, at that point in 1848, it was already an infamous proposal. It was already infamous, right? It wasn't like he came up with in 1848. I have a new idea here. No, it's already an infamous proposal of the communists. Here are two American folks who... um, tried to redefine family and marriage early in the 1800s. I give a bunch of different examples in the book. One of them, John Humphrey Noyes, the Bible communist. By the way, he's the only one that I've found who believed in God. Almost all of them don't believe in God. But he created the Oneida Colony in New York. And another one, Robert Owen. You probably, show of hands if anyone has heard of Robert Owen. Okay, a few, that's good. It's good. You go to any university in America, none, Right? Uh, none, none whatsoever. It's not what they're teaching. They don't teach any of this stuff. They can't. They can't teach it. Because then people would know where it comes from and they would reject it. That's how the bias works. It's sins of omission. It's what they leave out. That's how you really brainwash. You leave out the stuff that people need to know. You just don't even bring it up. But so, where are we? Where did it go? Uh, No, let me go back. This is a quote from Robert Owen, 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1826. By the way, what happened on July 4th, 1826, 50th anniversary? Two Americans died. Who? Thomas Jefferson. John Adams. It was America's jubilee. Everybody was all excited about it. Life, liberty, the pursuit of property. Everybody celebrating about this great thing they had discovered in America. This guy named Robert Owen stands up at his ideological colony in New Harmony, Indiana. And he says, I now declare to you and to the world, this is his declaration of mental independence. I now declare to you and to the world that man up to this hour in all parts of the earth has been a slave to the most monstrous evils (laughs) that could ever be inflicted on the race. Well, what could these be? I refer to private property. Absurd and irrational systems of religion and marriage founded upon individual property combined with some of these irrational systems of religion. So his unholy trinity, private property, religion, and marriage. Got to go after all of those. Got to take them down. There's a lot of quotes here. I won't go through all of them. Marx and Engels said, it is not possible to speak of the family. Bourgeois marriage is, in reality, a system of wives held in common. The communist revolution is the most radical rupture with traditional relations. It is indeed. You've got to take down tradition. You've got to take down the Bible. You've got to take down natural law. You've got to take down God. You've got to take down tradition. Look at this one. Do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this we plead guilty. Absolutely. One of the first things you got to do is get them out of the home schools, the Christian schools, the religious schools. One of the first things that the Bolsheviks did when they took over in 1917, fully nationalized all education. And you know, they, they abolished the Russian Orthodox Church's control of schools. Uh, and by the way, they loved the writings of the American uh, founding father of public education, John Dewey. I've got like three chapters on him in my book, Dupes. 
um, John Dewey, founder of Columbia Teachers College. They were translating Dewey's books into Russian before the Russian Civil War even ended, including his, his classic Democracy and Education. If you go to any teacher's college, any department of education, you will read Democracy and Education. It's right there next to the Dewey statue, probably in the, in the corner of, of, of the department. What they will not tell you when you're reading this is that the Bolsheviks adored the writings of Dewey. Because they said, this is exactly, this is exactly the education system we want for our state. And by the way, when Dewey found out about that, you would think Dewey would be like, oh man, maybe I need to rethink my ideas. Dewey was flattered. He said, well, thank you very much. They brought him over there in 1929, wined and dined him uh, under, under Stalin. Bolsheviks loved the writings of Dewey. All right, this is, let me see here. I'll go to the next slide. They hated religion too. Religion is the opiate of the masses, said Karl Marx. Communism begins where atheism begins. A student of mine at Grove City College once told me that one of his teachers at a private Christian school, not that far from where I'm speaking right now, told them that as Christians, they should be communists. And if I wish Marx had been in the room because he would have said, you're out of your mind, young man. That is impossible. Communism begins where atheism begins. Lenin thought about this even worse. Lenin said, all worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. Let's see, where is it? Back. Back. All right. All worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. Lenin was the founder of the Soviet state. You guys know what that means, right? I don't have to describe that. Okay, don't Google it. (laughs) There is nothing more abominable than religion. Nothing more abominable than religion. Friedrich Engels, Alexandra Colante. I can't spend too much time on a lot of these slides. There's a lot of them. Alexandra Colante was the feminist Uh, leading Marxist feminist of the Bolshevik Revolution. She was kind of the Eleanor Roosevelt of the Bolshevik Revolution. And look at this quote. The old type of family has had its day. The worker mother must learn not to differentiate between yours and mine. That is, between your child and my child. She must remember that there are only our children, the children of Russia's communist workers. Communist society will take it upon itself all the duties involved in the education of the child. Now, as I was putting that quote in my book, I thought, I need to track down the Melissa Harris Perry quote that I heard about recently. She has a show on MSNBC. She is a Wake Forest, Princeton, PhD. Um, she, she leaned forward campaign. She's one of the leading intellectual progressives in the country today. Look at her quote. It looks exactly like what Alexandra Colante said. She said this just two years ago. We have never invested as much in public education as we should because we've always had this kind of private notion of children. She thinks that's bad, right? We haven't had a very collective notion of our children. We have to break through that kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents. Yeah, yuck. Or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. When I... um, when I had to dig that quote out to cite it in the book, I found it, among other places, at the Fox News website. And I went to the reader's comments, and I was reading the reaction, and people were saying things like, uh, OMG, I've never, I've never heard anything like this before. This woman says that children belong to the state, not to parents. 
I have. The, the Bolsheviks and Alexandra Kalante were saying this stuff 100 years ago. So our progressives are just a few decades, maybe even a century behind them. That's all. It's just taking them a little while to catch up. American communists, Bella Dodd and Whitaker Chambers. So this is when this, these ideas started to come to the United States. Bella Dodd, the party did all it could to push women into industry. Communism is an all, she tried to, she wanted to adopt children, but they told her that she shouldn't do that. Whitaker Chambers, a great famous case in 1952, 1949, 1950, published his book, Witness, 1952. They regarded marriage as a bourgeois convention and loathed it with the same intensity with which middle class people loathe sin. So the idea in Communist Party circles in America was that there should not be you know, sort of one man, one woman, biblically based marriage. And, uh, Chambers had several party marriages. These were marriages where you shacked up, you lived with a woman for a time, and in one case he even brought in uh, his buddy, and, uh, and they shared, they had the uh, you know, same, well, I guess there's kids in here, right? Uh, so they were, but they were redefining marriage back then, 1930s, 1940s. They were doing the communist thing. By the way, they were both, uh, they both became communists at Columbia University. Um, that is John Dewey's, Columbia's university, where Columbia's, uh, Columbia Teachers College began. A whole bunch of people became uh, prominent communists at Columbia University. Uh, Thomas Merton, right? Thomas Merton joined the Communist Party when, when he was there. I could go on and on with different examples. Moving ahead here. Uh, so Russia is where they really start to first redefine family and marriage. Uh, they, the Bolsheviks took over in October 1917. One of the first things that they did was they, they abolished the Russian Orthodox Church's prohibition on divorce. Because the Russian Orthodox Church said that marriage is for life, period, and you know, we're not going to honor divorce. The Bolsheviks, this is amazing, you weren't allowed to have freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom of assembly. You weren't allowed to withdraw money from your bank account. You weren't allowed to own a fur coat. You weren't allowed to worship God. You weren't allowed to leave the country. But man, if you wanted a divorce, go baby, go. Sky was the limit. Full privatization, no nationalization, easiest thing in the world. Here's a postcard, fill it out, you're divorced. They wanted that bad, real bad. By, here we go, the... The effect on this was catastrophic. The divorce rate skyrocketed soon to levels unseen in the history of man. Massive numbers. A friend of mine, Marilyn Reed, often goes to Cuba. Um, Cuba's the same way. All the communist countries. The, the countries with the highest divorce rates are the communist countries. Um, everybody in Cuba is divorced. The, the world took notice. The Atlantic in 1926 published a piece titled The Russian Effort to Abolish Marriage. Remember, Marx had talked about the abolition of the family. They're doing what Marx would do, right? WWMD, what would Marx do? One study reported in the late 1960s, this is a Harvard University press book, it is not unusual to meet men, and Soviet men and women who had been married and divorced upwards of 15 times. The other thing, though, that they really, really, really wanted bad, and here, absolute privatization, abortion. 
the Bolsheviks really wanted abortion. Vladimir Lenin in 1913, writing in Pravda four years before they took over, called for an unconditional annulment of all laws against abortion. In 1920, abortion was made fully and legally available, provided free of charge. I did a review of high school civics textbooks to see how they treat history. And one of the textbooks, it talked about how, uh, how great Bolshevik Russia was for women and for women's rights. And I'm thinking, how can you say that? What are you talking about? You, I mean, how could this be? Next line was the answer. Well, they legalized abortion. What more does a woman need, right? If you have that, you're, you're the freest woman in the world. Who cares about freedom of religion and press and assembly and the right to own private property? You just need abortion, it's a high school civics textbook, one of the top 15 used in the United States. It got so bad, abortion absolutely skyrocketed in Russia. It got so bad that in 1936, Stalin had to ban it. Because he said, if this doesn't stop, we're not going to have a country left. This is too much. I mean, this is going to literally wipe us out. 1955, Khrushchev brought it back. By the way, look at what Trotsky reprimanded Stalin. You can't be a good communist and and abolish abortion. What are you doing? 1955, Nikita Khrushchev brings it back. By the late 1960s, Harvard University Press book, quote, one can find Soviet women who've had 20 abortions. I found uh, one article that I didn't put in the book by a pastor who claimed that he had actually met women who had had 40 abortions. I couldn't document it. It wasn't reliable enough. I didn't include it. But um, this was a very reliable study from from the 1960s. Look at this. Uh, uh, This room would know this question. In America, we averaged in the worst years of Roe v. Wade how many abortions a year? A million, million and a half? Yes, was 1.6. Soviets, Soviet Union, by the way, same population as us, averaged 7 to 8 million per year. 7 to 8 million per year. That bottom, that should say by the year 2050, they're projecting that Russia will go from 140 million to 104 million because of abortion and abortion-induced infertility caused by women having too, too many abortions. By the way, Vladimir Putin has put the first restrictions on abortion in Russia in about 50 years. And you know, this isn't because Putin's a saint, right? But he, you know, he doesn't want his country to disappear. I'll skip that. Somebody who was really enthralled by this was Margaret Sanger. So Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, which started as the American Birth Control League, ABCL, founded not long after the Bolshevik Revolution, about the same time, about 100 years ago, actually, we're about the 100th anniversary of Planned Parenthood. She made a uh, Potemkin village tour of the Soviet Union in 1934. So she wanted to go over there and see what the comrades were up to. A lot of American progressives thought, you know, maybe the Soviets have got it. Maybe they figured this out, right? Maybe the Soviets have the key here. In a lot of cases, they thought um, they were more like Fabian socialists. They were slowly achieving the revolution. The Bolsheviks were doing a revolution. They were going to it a lot quicker. So a lot of them thought, well, let's go over and see what Moscow was doing. That's why John Dewey went. That's why George Bernard Shaw went. 
H.G. Wells, who Margaret Sanger was having an affair with. Um, H.G. Wells went. H.G. Wells was just blown away by Lenin. What a marvelous little man that Lenin is. Uh, Very impressed by Stalin. Uh, George Bernard Shaw's statements on Stalin are horrific. Uh, You literally wouldn't believe him. You'd be like, he's got to be joking about this. It wasn't. I mean, a lot of these progressives were really impressed by what they were finding in Bolshevik Russia. And so Margaret Sanger, she goes over there, and she said, the mother and child are under the protection and care of the government in Bolshevik Russia to an extent perhaps never before equaled in history. She liked that. She approved of that. By the way, a lot of these people, um, uh, Aristotle said, people start revolutions for reason pertaining to their own lives. And Margaret Sanger was never at home with her kids. And her husband would beg her to please stay at home. And she had numerous affairs, cheated on him all the time. And Sanger's kids, I quote him in the book, saying things like, yeah, mom was just really never at home. So she wanted a state where the state could take care of her kids, like Alexandra Colante wanted. She loved the fact on birth control in Bolshevik Russia. Now, look at this middle quote and think deeply about this and think of how this applies to today. She wrote this in her birth control review in 1935, after she came back. Theoretically, there are no obstacles to birth control in Russia. It's accepted on the grounds of health and human right. We in America could well take example from Stalin's Russia. It was right at the start of the Great Purge. Where there are no legal restrictions, no religious condemnation, and where birth control instruction is part of the regular welfare service of the government. So that, um, that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we are today, right? No religious condemnation. Little sisters of the poor, pay for the damn birth control, and if you won't pay for it, we're taking you to the Supreme Court, right? Hobby Lobby, Conestoga Woods, you know, accept the HHS mandate, or you're going to the Supreme Court, and we're going to shut you down. Right? We don't want any legal restrictions to birth control, no religious restrictions. It is, birth control in America is now part of the regular welfare service of the government. And by the way, if you don't think you should be paying for it with taxpayer dollars, they will tell you, well, then you favor a war on women. You are a hater, right? As if this was etched in stone at the American founding. So that's what uh, Sanger has wanted all along. By the way, I should point out here, too, that... Um, Margaret Sanger, of course, um, had hideous views on race. She was a racial eugenicist, and she wanted birth control, one, so that women could have sex without having children, okay, right, the traditional reason, also so women could space their births and literally control their births and control the size of their family, right, but also because of the skeleton in the progressive closet, eugenics, right? She talked about race improvement, she wanted, to, she wanted to refine the country. She wanted to remove its human weeds. She said, we need to purge the American landscape of the imbeciles, idiots, and morons that, that, are, play, that are plaguing the landscape. She also had a Negro project. And in May 1926, Margaret Sanger spoke to the Silver Lake, New Jersey chapter of the KKK. Go get her memoirs at the local library. Turn to pages 366 and 367. Two full pages. Open it up. 366 on the left, 367 on the right. She writes about her speech to the KKK. 
And, uh, and if there was a progressive Mount Rushmore, she'd be chiseled on it. Right next to John Dewey and Eleanor Roosevelt. This is the kind of thing that you can get away with. I wrote a piece on it recently called Margaret Sanger and Race, and a guy at the Huffington Post absolutely ripped me to shreds. So, well, the KKK was kind of a mainstream organization in the 1920s. So I'm telling you, you know, their side can do any of this. If the founder of the NRA right, had spoken to the KKK, it would cease to exist. It'd be done as an organization. But all is forgiven for Sanger at the altar of abortion, right? All is forgiven. All sins are washed clean, right? Because she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She can do no wrong. Uh, Last one over here. Sanger was, however, to her credit, shocked at the number of abortions that she was seeing in Bolshevik Russia. Like, whoa, Uh, how many are going on here? And they, they told her about 100,000 a year. She said, didn't expect, I'm here for the birth control stuff. I didn't expect all these abortions. But, but look at this. This is a classic statement of uh, kind of progressive thinking. All the officials with whom I discussed the matter stated that as soon as the economic and social plans of Soviet Russia are realized, neither abortions nor contraception will be necessary or desired. Why is that? A functioning communistic society will assure the happiness of every child and will assume the full responsibility for its welfare and education. If we could just have more power, right? If we could just control more of the state, if we can just have more control over people, right, we can ensure everybody's happiness, right? The utopian vision, right? Abortion won't even be necessary at some point, right? If you have the full communistic society, you're not even going to need abortion, Right? People will be, it will be utopia. It never ends. They just think that they haven't done enough yet. Just give us more power, we'll be all right. All right, this is where it gets really, really ugly. Cultural Marxism and the Frankfurt School. The cultural Marxists came out of Frankfurt, Germany, in the 1920s and 1930s. They were, okay, so they were all Marxists. Get this, you guys. They were Freudian Marxists which means you take the worst ideas of the 19th century, Marx, and the worst ideas of the 20th century, Freud. I mean, you talk about a match not made in heaven, all right? They fuse them together. The cultural Marxists realized, you know, every time that Marxism goes up against, uh, against capitalism and economics, we're going to get our tails kicked every time because people aren't going to choose to be broke. So we need to find a new conveyor belt to bring in Marxism and take down the West. And so for them, it was culture, 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 education, 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 sex, 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 and specifically through the universities. So that's where they decided to launch their revolution. So one of the founders of this was uh, George Lukash. By the way, they were... So they were mostly Jewish, and they were in Germany. So when Hitler came in, they had to flee. They had to leave. And so where were they going to go? What university was going to take them in, right? I mean, what university would take fugitive freaks of of Freudian Marxism? Thank you, Columbia. (laughs) 
So they, so John Dewey, John Dewey convinced the president of Columbia. He said, "Bring them over here, man. They could, they could work with my my Columbia Teachers College. Give them an office, a building here." And he said, "Oh, and he could work for my. They they could work for my favorite organization, of which Dewey is the national honorary president for life. Anyone know what it is? The National Education Association." So they could, they could work for them, just do their marvelous work. So anyway, these guys, these guys hated marriage. George Lukash, the Hungarian founder, woman is the enemy. By the way, girls, all of these guys were divorced. All right, all of them. All of them. Healthy love dies in marriage, which is a business transaction. The bourgeois family gives off swamp vapors. It stinks. Politics is only the means. Culture is the goal. They they realize you want to change the country, you change the culture. You want to know where same-sex marriage came from? Came out of the universities in the late 1990s, early 2000s. All those guys graduated. They went to Hollywood. They went to New York. They took over Yahoo. They took over Facebook. And they controlled. That's where it happened. These guys were patient. Might take 100 years, but we'll get there. We'll take her down. Wilhelm Reich was one of the leading founders of this guy. This guy is really quite amazing. Marriages fall to peace as a result of the ever-deepening discrepancy between sexual needs and economic condition. Uh, Guys, tell this to your wives. The sexual needs can be gratified with one and the same partner for a limited time only. On the other hand, the economic, this results in the wretchedness of marriage. The wretchedness of marriage. And uh, he soon got divorced. (laughs) Herbert Marcuse was the leader of this in the United States. The Weather Underground, Bill Ayers, Bernardine Dorn, um, all those different, their their guru, Mark Rudd, Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, Marcuse was their guy. Marcuse was their guru. He started applying all of this stuff to sexuality in a way that Marx and Engels would blush, that they would never think of. By the way, Marx and Engels, I should say, also had miserable family lives. Um, Marx's wife was near suicidal. Two or three of his children did commit suicide. Um, he had, he had a, an affair with a family nursemaid um, who he got pregnant, and he refused to ever recognize the child's existence. Horrible. As for Ingalls, he hated marriage so bad that he simply refused to do it. Um, you know, he wanted mistress after mistress after mistress without being married. But anyway, so Marcuse applies all this stuff to sexuality and becomes a big advocate of what he calls polymorphous perversity. And these are the guys that start arguing that gender roles should be changed, that sexuality should be changed. And that other non-traditional forms of intercourse should be embraced. And I know, thank you. I'm being careful. And uh, right, exactly. And they, you can read the book. How's that? All right, you guys could imagine what 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 he's what he's talking about. But they started arguing that uh, people are fundamentally capable of. Um, well, how do I say this? Never mind. There's no there's no good way to say it. And I hate that. I mean, I, 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 why, why do I have to be dragged into this? I mean, I used to talk about Marx and Engels and economics, but I'm not comfortable talking about a lot of this stuff, but here we are. 
Marcuse, uh, Dennis Altman's book, uh, they, you know, they dedicated their book to Marcuse and his ideas. He was one of the founders of the gay rights movement, modern gay rights movement. They absolutely loved Marcuse. If you go to the website of LGBT.com, you'll find bio pages on Marcuse, Reich. They adore these guys. These guys were pioneers in their field. Oh, get this. Marcuse talked about what he called liberating tolerance or repressive tolerance. Think hard about this one. All right. He argued here for intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. Sound familiar? So where they are today, and what's so unfair about this, is if you now support the biblical natural definition of marriage that was supported by your parents, grandparents, and their parents, 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 and on and on and on. If you support the definition of marriage favored by 99.999% of people who ever lived, who ever walked the planet, right? if you support the 2,000-year-old, multi-millennial, Judeo-Christian, Western standard of male-female marriage, you're now on the right. right? You're, you know, you're now on the right. Really, I just thought that I stood on the side of like humanity on this one. No, you're now on the right, and you should not be tolerated. So again, tolerance for me, but not for thee. So this is how it works. So you'll say to them, well, that's not really tolerance. I mean, to go and tell the baker or photographer that they can't refuse to make a cake for a wedding that they don't want to do, that's not really tolerance. Yes, it is tolerance, they say, right? So in other words, tolerance for them, but not for the baker and the photographer. It's a total Marcusean concept of tolerance, right out of the universities, right out of the universities. The New Left Marxist Feminist, Betty Friedan's 1963 book, The Feminist Mystique, which compared um, suburban households and American housewives to comfortable concentration camps. Betty Friedan was a Marxist. A lot of people don't realize that. And one of the scholars who did her biography, who's totally sympathetic to her, by the way, notes how different passages in her classic, The Feminine Mystique, came right from the 1884 book on family and marriage by Ingalls. So that's something they didn't talk about in the 1960s. Kate Millett. Kate Millett wrote Sexual Politics. It was her dissertation at Columbia, uh, where Mark Rudd, the year before, the founder of SDS, uh, Mark Rudd, along with Jane Fonda, uh, is one of the founders of Progressives for Obama. Uh, Mark Rudd, was, uh, he shut down Columbia in 1968. So he, was, uh, he read Marcuse and all these different folks as well. But um, Kate Millett talked about taking down patriarchy, talked about different forms of sexuality, different forms of marriage. Here is Mallory Millett, Kate's sister, talking about going to a meeting at Kate's house in 1969. And it's interesting, Mallory now is a very traditional um, Orthodox Roman Catholic. Kate now is a big advocate for same-sex marriage. And they went through a kind of litany, a kind of a chant. Why are we here today to make revolution? What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. 
How do we do that? By destroying the American family, right? How do we destroy the family? By destroying the patriarch. By taking away, by destroying monogamy. How do we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, you know, all this stuff, right? That's how you do it. They got it. They knew what to do. Not rocket science. They knew what to do. All right, moving on here. I got about 14 minutes, and then I, will take, then I, I want to take questions. Mallory continued here. I, I won't quote that, but that's a compelling quote. Here is the uh, 60s radicals, Mark Rudd. Um, you know, there were no limits to our politics of transgression. And again, there's kids here, right? They, uh, their conceptions of marriage and what they, how they treated it in the weather underground and some of the echelons of the SDS is shocking. And among other things, it's interesting, Rudd has written his memoir in the last few years with some mea culpas. He, the, among other things, they argued that to be a member of the weather underground, kind of like to be a member of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to be a Christian. But to be a member of the Weather Underground, you weren't allowed to get married. Um, you know, they, smashing monogamy was the credo. And he said, you know, we lost a lot of good people through that because we had certain guys and girls that fell in love and wanted to get married or wanted to be dedicated to one another. But you couldn't do that and be a good cultural Marxist. You couldn't do that and be a good cultural revol- revolutionary. The guy who was the politics of meaning guru to Hillary Clinton... What's his name? Michael Lerner. He's the editor of Tikkun, the Jewish spiritual magazine. He's now a big advocate for same-sex marriage as well. Late 1960s, he gets married to a girl whose, um, whose father was very traditional uh, Vietnam vet. And they got married over a... They, by the way, the, the wedding rings that they exchanged, one of which Mark Rudd said he owns as well, was hammered out of downed fuselages from American aircraft in Vietnam from American pilots. So they exchanged the wedding rings and they cut a, a wedding cake that said smash monogamy on it. And uh, they were divorced with it within a couple of years. Again, it's that natural law thing. You know, you, you, you can't, you can only militate against nature so much. Uh, uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, I'll skip them. Ron Radosh, I'll skip him. Uh, the Red Family, the Red Family was a collective outside the hills of Berkeley that was uh, one of the, f- the founders were Robert Shear, the longtime columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and Tom Hayden. Um, Tom Hayden married who? Jane Fonda. Yeah, they're both two of the, also of the founding members of Progressives for Obama. You could find, it's a group of about 57 people. They came out in 2007, 2008. But uh, Tom Hayden was, uh, they, they were redefining marriage and family there. And yeah, this is what they do. All right, a couple of examples. This is where they start to go into communists, start to finally embrace the issue of homosexuality. Should I go through this? It's interesting. J. Edgar Hoover, they smeared and maligned as somebody who was a cross-dresser bisexual. And it, it looks like there's probably no good evidence for that. But when they find somebody that they don't like, right, they'll use everything. They'll throw the whole kitchen sink at them. Harry Hay is the leading founder of the gay Marxist liberation movement. Harry Hay. 
and very, very important, a pioneer of this. He was um, homosexual long before he was a communist. He was brought into the communist movement by Will Gear, who played grandpa on the Waltons in the 1970s. So uh, Will Gear was um, bisexual and a communist, and he radicalized Harry Hay, and he brought Harry Hay into the movement. So I don't recall an episode of that on the Waltons where they're talking to John Boy about, about any of this stuff. All right, so getting, getting to my main point here, when I decided to write this book, Part of the occupational hazard I have to deal with in my grim, depressing life is that every day I have to read the website of Communist Party USA. I read the website of People's World, which is the successor publication to The Daily Worker, which was the Communist Party USA mouthpiece that was Soviet-directed and Soviet-funded for 50, 60 years. So I have to go there. I have to read their stuff every day. I read all of their stuff because you have to know what they're doing and what they're thinking. And I started noticing a few years ago that uh, the Communist Party USA, People's World, was on fire for same-sex marriage, for really the entire LGBT agenda. And I thought, wow, look at this. This is fascinating. Once upon a time, Communist Party USA smeared people like J. Edgar Hoover. And actually, Communist Party USA, um, somewhat, it's a more complicated issue, expelled gay people from the movement, including Harry Hay. Among other reasons, because they thought that they were um, subject to blackmail. But all of a sudden, here they were just totally, really pushing for it and vilifying and demonizing. You ought to see how they went after the state of Indiana when Indiana tried to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I mean, they are totally on board, across the board, for the entire LGBT agenda. By the way, they also for abortion. I mean, they've been, you know pro-choice, you know, pro-abortion for, for a long time. You know, else is, is uh, really supportive of both of these things is um, the Satanist temple. Um, somebody wrote to me and said, I read your book and saw about how CPUSA and these other groups are for this. You should check out the website of the Satanist temple. They're really into all of this as well. I don't advise you going there. I mean, if you go there, I mean, it is like the evil just comes out of the screen. It is, uh, it, you could just feel it. But they are, um, they love, they love abortion at the Satanist temple. I mean, they, they really, and also it even says at the Satanist temple, they've been doing same-sex marriages with their witches and warlocks for years, it says. So they've been, they've been doing this for a while. But anyway, so I started noticing at um, a Communist Party USA, here's a statement from 2006, this is 10 years ago. They started celebrating Gay Pride Month there. Uh, the month of June has been designated as Pride Month, right? And um, in 2006, we still have a long way to go. That's, uh, th- that's from the Young Communist League. Sam Webb, the president of Communist Party USA. You can't, you can't read a speech now from Communist Party USA at their conventions where they're not talking about fighting for the rights of LGBT people. And here's what really shook me up. Because I teach Cold War, the Cold War, um, the most anti-gay regime on the planet has been Castro's Cuba since 1959. They take homosexuals and they put them in jail. They put them in insane asylums. 
I, I mean, you ever see the movie uh, with Al Pacino, 80s? He comes across Marielle Boatlift, Scarface, right? Uh, Al Pacino is a Marielito. He's coming, and they're asking him, they're asking him questions, and they start ribbing him. Uh, maybe you're interested in a, <laughs> yeah, They're questioning because what Castro was doing in the Marielle Boatlift, um, 1980, he took as many... Um, lunatics, murderers, criminals, and homosexuals as he could and put them on boats and got them out of the island, right? So for the left, which is always celebrating the free health care and the wonder of Cuba, um, you know, the biggest homophobe in the world has been Fidel Castro until very recently. I started noticing that in Cuba, they, they are now big advocates for same-sex marriage, the Huffington Post, May 2012. Look at this. Some 400 transvestites sashayed behind Castro in Havana, doing a long Congo line through the streets to celebrate the fifth Cuban Day against homophobia. Marchers shouted, down with homophobia, long live sexual diversity. This would have got you thrown in prison 10 years ago. What is this? How can, how can this be happening in Cuba? Mariella Castro on her uncle Fidel. He has done some gay advocacy work. Really? Speaking of the need to make progress in terms of rights based on sexual orientation and gender identity, right? So, so how, how can this be? Well, it's easy. Castro started declaring a war on religion and marriage in 1959. Everybody on the island is divorced. The abortion rate, we believe, is the third or fourth highest in the world behind only Russia, Vietnam, and Romania. And maybe even higher than that, we don't really know. Castro has been committed to taking down the family. And this, this really seals the deal. If you could redefine the family altogether, this is marvelous. All right, I've got about four minutes. What's going on here? So for me, what I noticed is that um, this recent embrace of same-sex marriage by the communist movement in the United States, um, they see this as the Trojan horse that they've been looking for to do what they've always wanted to do, which is take down the traditional, natural, biblical family. Now let me clarify again. This doesn't mean then that the typical same-sex marriage supporter in America is a communist. They're not. They're clearly not. But what they don't realize is how what they're advocating is also being advocated by people way off to the other extremes who see in this the vehicle that they've long, long waited for to take down family and marriage. This is a blessed event for them. This is perfect. And, and, and magnificently, um, communists are able to do this with the support of the majority of the population, of Main Street, of, of the mainstream. When Marx and Engels and the cultural Marxists and, and these guys shared their ideas in Berlin and Frankfurt in the 20s and 30s, in the 1800s, they were put under surveillance by the Prussian authorities. They said, these guys are menaces. Look what these guys want to do to marriage and family. Right? You know, these, guys, these guys are a serious threat. Well, now, the communist ideas of marriage are supported by the mainstream. And in fact, if you oppose them, you are portrayed as the outlier and the extremist. So the communists just can't believe their luck here. This is, um, this is really, really amazing. 
So, uh, you know, this is the culmination for them of a long march. The communists are dizzied by their success. They're genuinely fundamentally transforming human nature. And they're doing it with the support of the American mainstream. It's an amazing development. They, uh, the redefinition of marriage and family is finally at hand. They've pulled it off. I'm tempted to congratulate them. I, I, I really am. The key was to take down the universities. That's what you had to do. Take down the universities. Lenin said, um, in a quote that some think is, is apocryphal, give me four years with your children and I will change the culture in the country. What's sad, too, is you give them the four years and you pay for it. Here's $100,000. Here's my lifetime savings. I spent 18 years with Susie and Johnny, you know, good little Christian boy and girl, went to religious ed and everything and so forth. Now completely change everything that we just taught them. And they come home at Christmas from break and uh, wanting to know why uh, their fascist mom and dad won't fund Planned Parenthood. Right? All right, so beyond, i got a couple more slides, and then I'll stop. I've got a minute and a half left, and then I can take questions. Uh, there is a group out there called Beyond Same-Sex Marriage. They have their own website. It's called, uh, it's called uh, Beyond Same-Sex Marriage. And they are arguing that for them, this is key. Uh, Same-sex marriage is simply the instrument to redefine marriage altogether, to have all sorts of additional new conceptions of marriage. You have been listening to Paul Kengor, Professor of Political Science at Grove City College and New York Times bestseller author, and the 2016 Bringing America Back to Life Convention presenter. From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org, or call 440-668-4049. Through our FromTheMedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been brought to you by Cleveland Right to Life.